Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I want to thank the Fort Worth Club. We're, we're so pleased that the Fort Worth Club is truly a partner with us. I was coming up the elevator and I saw the, the, the note uh, on the sign and it says Fort Worth Club and uh, the World Affairs Council. And uh, we really appreciate this uh, partnership and collaboration. And thank you so much, members of the Fort Worth Club, for being with us. I also want to thank a firm that is a great supporter of the World Affairs Council, and that is Baker Botts. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. I can remember my first trip after I left the White House, um, after he left the White House, I arrived in Texas, uh, and all of a sudden my BlackBerry went off. The former president is now big on BlackBerry. And I get this email from him as soon as I land that says, welcome to the great state of Texas. Um, so it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, they, I, I want to make sure I leave enough time for questions and answers. Uh, this is an incredibly well-informed and knowledgeable group. So I thought what I would do, we titled it uh, Threats Foreign and Domestic. I'm going to run through for you kind of the high consequence but low probability to the, what I think is the much more likely near-term threat. Um, I'll run through one strategic threat and then take you a little bit around uh, the Persian Gulf in terms of current threats. And then you can take it anywhere you like. Uh, I'm happy to talk uh, at length about any substantive matter or a security matter, foreign policy, what it was like to work in the White House or in Washington, uh, or give, talk about current events. Um, when I think about sort of both the, un, the unlikely but high consequence event, it brings you really to what's going on in Washington yesterday and today, which is the nuclear summit. Um, really, the only entity in the country that's able to deal with a high-end potential threat like a nuclear weapon is the federal government. And if the federal government does not make that a priority, it isn't a priority and it, the work is not getting done. Um, I, I, you, we've heard a lot about this being the first uh, meeting of heads of state on this issue. And while that is correct in terms of meetings of this size, there are 47 heads of state in Washington meeting on this. Uh, President Bush, during, when, during his time in office, began the Global Nuclear Security Initiative with President Putin at the time uh, and called together leading experts from around the world. So this, has been, this is now building on what really has been several years of work. The other initiative that we uh, pushed very hard was the Proliferation Security Initiative, that is, the interception on the high seas of nuclear capability, nuclear-related materials, uh, and the ensuring that they didn't get to other countries that were proliferating. Um, of course, this is not just a matter, we hear a lot about uh, the security of nuclear materials, namely highly enriched uranium, but as you all know, it's also uh, separated plutonium that represents a problem uh, and that is the result of the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, th this has got to be moved around typically to, to uh, be handled and processed, reprocessed, and so this also represents a real threat from our partners in Western Europe. 
The, it's not only, one of the things I was sorry that we haven't heard more of out of the conference in Washington, but I know is a concern of intelligence and law enforcement officials in this country and around the world, is not only this, the, the ensuring the security of nuclear materials, it's nuclear expertise. We have scientists around the world in places like Iran, Pakistan, North Korea, who move around the world and take their knowledge with them. It's much easier to move people across borders, as we know, than it is material. And so this is a real proliferation concern. Uh, we've already seen the, the effects of that in places like the AQ Khan network in Pakistan that transferred the, his knowledge to places like Libya and other places that we may not have, we have never been able to identify because the Pakistani government refused access to American intelligence officials to him. Um, we also know from public reports uh, that, I guess it's two years ago now, Israel bombed a nuclear reactor outside in Syria, outside of Damascus. That facility, uh, we know from published reports, was the work of the North Koreans. And so when you think about, they didn't move materials, they didn't have to. What they moved was the, exp the, the intellectual property the knowledge base in North Korea to Syria to allow them to build that. Um, President Obama has made perfectly clear, as did President Bush before him, Al-Qaeda has made perfectly obvious their determination to acquire an, a, a weapon of mass destruction. The talk in Washington right now is about a nuclear capability. You know, going back almost 10 years now, bin Laden issued a fatwa, a religious, a, a Muslim religious edict authorizing the use of a weapon of mass destruction against a civilian population as being religiously condoned. Um, and that set in motion, that was the message to his followers around the world to assist the organization in acquiring the capability. We don't know how far they've gotten. Uh, it is a priority for the intelligence community to know how far they've gotten in terms of their nuclear capability. But we do know, uh, in terms of m weapons of mass destruction and effect, that they had a biological capability uh, in Afghanistan prior to the beginning of the war. We know that some of that scientific support spread around the world to places in Asia. We know they had a chemical capability, a chemical weapons capability. There were published reports about a device that was, that was constructed to go off in the New York City subway some years ago. That plan was never operationalized, and most concerning about that was we were never sure why. Why didn't they choose to launch it? The speculation had long been because they wanted a bigger, more spectacular attack, which has always been uh, their preference, but not knowing, there was never the intelligence to tell us why they hadn't chosen to do that. Um, you know, in the more near term, likely, we all remember the uh, attempted Christmas Day bombing, um, but that is the most likely near-term threat. Um, and there's been a couple of examples of disruptions uh, in, inside the United States. It's the lone bomber, it's the suicide bomber. Israel has dealt with this for many, many years. Uh, and we always believed when President Bush was in office that, again, the reason they hadn't done this is that it would really demonstrate to the world how degraded their capability had become. Uh, that they couldn't pull off a massive attack with mass casualty. But it's, we, we always knew that the problem with that theory was, would we have the indication and warning? Would we have the intelligence to suggest that they were sufficiently frustrated that any attack, even a small scale attack, uh, would be enough for them as opposed to nothing at all? Well, I don't think we have to worry about that. They have clearly signaled to us that they are prepared now to move from 
It doesn't mean they give up their ambition for a spectacular attack, but they are now prepared to move to smaller scale individual bombers. Um, the, there are many disturbing things about the Christmas Day attempt. Um, I'll mention a few. You know, Americans, I, I, I have often said publicly that Americans were very forgiving. In the wake of 9-11, they understood that the government had failed them. They understood that the government's made up of individuals and that people inside the government had failed them. That said, uh, a very forgiving country had the right to expect that its government would not make the same mistake twice. And so many, inst many things were changed in the wake of September the 11th to ensure a stronger, more capable government. Uh, eight years of increases in the intelligence community budgets, uh, increased, uh, never before seen the increases in the capability of human intelligence, the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, a national security division inside the FBI, an information sharing capability, President Bush, when he was in office, issued an, an in, a national information sharing strategy requiring federal agencies to share information. And I can remember when we were planning, before I, I left uh, the White House in January of 08, a year before the President left office, and telling those both in the White House at the time and in the, in the Democratic Party as they were preparing for the campaign that Information sharing, while it's not sexy, it's not an issue like nuclear weapons or proliferation, is the kind of issue that if it's not worked every single day from the White House, we will fail. Because it's the sort of thing, in, the institutions themselves will protect the information. Um, and, you know, so I, I took no pride uh, when we found after the Christmas Day attempt that organizations fail to share information and fail to put it in data systems in a timely way so that it could be stopped. Uh, we were talking at the lunch table, if we wait to stop a bomber, you know, if we wait on technology and screening measures at airports and we wait to catch people at the time that they're at the airport, our system has failed. We want to have that capability, we need to purchase it, we need to make sure we've got the latest technology to do that. But we must understand if that's the point in the system that we catch somebody with a bomb, then our entire intelligence and national security apparatus has failed the country. Um, it, it was clear to me, look, the president, his Homeland Security Advisor, John Brennan, who I worked with in, uh, during the course of my public service career, were very frustrated. Um, and while that's understandable, they're now in the position where they have responsibility to ensure to the American people that that problem gets fixed. Um, you know. When we look at suicide bombers, what's the most likely context we're like, we're, we are to see that? There should be no doubt in anybody's mind, Al-Qaeda is obsessed with transportation. But I think we have to be careful not to limit ourselves to aviation. Uh, there's aviation, there are subways, we saw that in London and Madrid, they've bombed ferries in Africa. Um, and there's no question when we see extremists in Israel bombing buses, trucks, uh, bombs on roadways, that we have to be concerned about that as well as oil and infrastructure. Um, I worry about our financial sector. We knew that Al-Qaeda was targeting in the, in the run-up to the 2004 election, uh, the financial centers in New York and Washington. Um, they understand very well, not only do they want the picture and the mass casualty, but they understand the economic effects on this country of a terrorist attack, and they want to maximize that capability. Um, and so, we saw them continue to struggle to look for vulnerabilities 
in the aviation sector, but I, I think we can't presume that they will limit themselves to that. So you've got the high-end weapon of mass destruction threat that the government's got to pay attention to while it's working against the more immediate tactical threat of an individual bomber. But while all that's going on, what do I see as the, the immediate strategic threat, the one that we've got to see on the horizon, plan for and organize ourselves, what's the next strategic threat? And what I would say to you, I've spent a lot of time speaking and writing on the subject, is cybersecurity. Um, now, how does that threat come at us? It really comes at us in four distinct ways. There's the denial of service. We saw this when the Russians denied service to the Georgian government uh, several years ago where they just shut down their system. You couldn't get communications in or out. The second way is in the either destruction or theft of data. That is, we go into your system and we take stuff out or we change the information. Imagine, if you will, I, my example of this sort of an attack is imagine our financial system. Uh, if you went to your ATM, I, I literally bank either online or at my ATM. Um, imagine if you went and you couldn't, all of a sudden when you put your ATM card in, you had a zero balance. Um, because somebody went in and changed the ones and zeros and the entire world lost confidence in the global economic system. The other is the uh, a threat in the supply chain. That is, somebody gets access to the, the hard drives and the boards and goes in and corrupts them in some way, either because of make, make them unusable to you, that would be the best case in that instance, or get wire them so that they send data out. Uh, personal data, health data, financial data. Um, the, you know, interestingly, we suffered, the U.S. government suffered an attack, again, this was also publicly reported, where an individual who was assigned to the Central Command, responsible for executing the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, goes to a conference. This is a very common foreign intelligence technique. You are given as sort of a, a, a gift, a parting gift, a thumb drive. You take the thumb drive, you put it into your system, and somebody now has access to your entire company's data can download, can change, can do all sorts of mischief. Um, they did that in CENTCOM. Soldier came back, got a thumb drive, needed to transfer data from one system to another, plugged the thumb drive in, and for several days, a foreign service was watching us move men and material and plans and weapons uh, because of that thumb drive. Um, that's a supply chain problem. And then there's the insider threat. It's either a sloppy insider like the soldier or it's an insider who, you're, like, who has administrator's privileges who can go in and either change data, steal data. And, and we've seen this actually in the defense industries uh, where individuals then down, download plans for weapons onto a thumb drive and take it out. Um, before I left in January of 08, President Bush signed a classified executive order giving directions to the federal government. Just this year, most of that has been declassified. And what, we, what you learn publicly then is the government is focused on providing greater protection to government systems. There are aspira there's aspirational language in there for public-private partnership, but it's clear that the real focus of the federal government in the initial stages is, is the detection of threats. That's a program called Einstein One, where the government is finally going to get its arms around sharing information about when it's been attacked after the fact. You know, to those of you who are more technically savvy than I, you realize what a basic capability that is. If that's where we're starting, we've got a long distance to travel. 
The second generation of that program, Einstein II, is understanding when you're being attacked so you can begin to protect it as it's happening. And then, of course, the third piece to that program will be, and it's not in place yet, the ability to real-time respond to that attack. Um, so detection, protection, and response. Um, you know, it was interesting this morning as I was waiting to come in to, to lunch, I was looking at the Dallas Morning News and on page four, there's, a, there's an article about Space Command now teaching uh, our Air Force at Space Command basic cyber warfare skills. But what that doesn't tell you and what the big policy issue confronting the U.S. government is, very much going back to principles of the Cold War about deterrence policy. What will be this country's policy of deterrence? When will a cyber attack be viewed as an act of war? What means will we use to retaliate? Will we use warfare in cyberspace? Will we use conventional military means? What will our deterrence policy be? It, it, and there have been instances in, in theaters in Iraq and Afghanistan about when is it best for the United States military and the intelligence community to watch a cyber warrior and collect that information and learn about the network versus when is it best for them to respond to it. That brings into play, frankly, a thing called Title 10 versus Title 50. When are you using military authorities as an act of war and when are you using civilian authorities in the intelligence community? All of these things have yet to be decided. President Obama gave a speech early on in his term about the importance of cybersecurity. He had real trouble finding somebody. He did a 60-day review, issued a paper, um, had a real hard time. They now have an individual in, as the cyber czar, if you will, a uh, man by the name of Howard Smith, good man, smart, um, but they need to act. And interestingly enough, this of course generates privacy concerns. Um, we want to know, we want to be able to have identity management and assurance when you're talking uh, about a transaction, a purchase. I want to know who I'm dealing with, who I'm giving my, my financial data to. We want to know who the bad guys are. We want to identify them. But we balance that in the policy community against the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We don't want people prying into what our personal preferences are, sexual health, that all financial. Um, and so we need to work through, as a country, those issues, how we are going to balance, just as we've had to work through them in the context of a physical war, we're going to have to work through them in the context of uh, the cyber realm. We've seen Google, uh, Google's, the controversy of Google in China, uh, where, they've been, where a commercial enterprise has been caught up in this very debate themselves um, and had to make some very difficult choices. I mentioned that I've written on the subject. I'm the chairwoman of a, a, a nonprofit think tank called INSA, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We've written a paper about the importance of a public-private uh, partnership that doesn't necessarily have the government regulating the cyberspace, but setting best standards, best practices, uh, having a self-reporting and self-assessment capability, providing things like tax incentives and insurance incentives to businesses to meet those standards, and to have government not set rules and regulations that are either ill-conceived Ill or have very bad consequences in the commercial sector, but to work in a true partnership, sharing information with private sector and relying on private sector capability, which frankly, I can tell you is far more advanced uh, than we have on the public sector side. Um, you know, it's interesting because this becomes, cybersecurity and information security becomes an incredibly important uh, private sector 
concern. And, and you see it increasingly not only in the C-suite of major companies, but you see it on boards of directors. I made a visit to a Dallas company um, and met with the general counsel, and we were talking about this issue. He asked me for some advice, and I asked him, who is the individual responsible? So he called in the chief security officer, and we began to have a conversation, and he said, no, 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 that's not me. That's the chief information officer. So he left, and we got the chief information officer in, and he said, no, 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 that's the chief security officer. <laughs> and the general counsel quickly realized that everybody thought somebody else was responsible. Um, there are increasingly positions called the chief information security officer, um, who works between that delta, works that delta. Um, but it is really important because information, the company I was talking to, their whole business is in managing their supply chain. So imagine their system going down. They don't know where anything is or when it's going to arrive. Um, there was a company in a, a grocery chain store in Great Britain. All of the information when they swiped your credit card was wirelessly transferred to a back room in Pakistan where your financial data had been stolen. That's a, it's a business risk, it's a reputational risk, and you bet when boards of directors are meeting and getting their, their quarterly brief on risk management, they better, those boards of directors, if they want to be covered by their DNO insurance, better be asking the question about information security. It doesn't require a technical background. It, frankly, at that level, it requires common sense and tenacity in making sure that businesses take this seriously. Okay, before I, before I close, I thought I would um, spend a little bit of time giving you the run around the Asia, Southwest Asia uh, and the Middle East. I spent a lot of time when I was at the White House in Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, all through the Gulf, meeting with heads of state, um, and dealing also with the war in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, the federally administrated tribal areas, I will tell you I am, uh, General Kayani, uh, the Army Chief of Staff in Pakistan, was in Washington about 10 days ago. I had the opportunity to meet with him. Uh, they're taking casualties. They're, they seem much more committed and, and persistently committed to this fight than they ever have been. That said, he no sooner left town, we got word that there had been a major Taliban capture, very significant. Uh, Pakistani forces working with U.S. forces and we also heard that the ISI, the intelligence service in Pakistan, released two significant Taliban members. And so you sort of have to get in your mind, um, this is again one of those where it's an everyday fight. It's going to be one step forward and two steps back. And on your very best day, you're taking two steps forward and like this case, one step back. Um, but we can't give up because it is true to say that you're only going to solve the problem in Afghanistan by looking at this as a regional issue. Prior administration believed that, this administration believed that. Um, and you can't deal with Pakistan without dealing with their military. Afghanistan is a huge issue. Um, we've watched the, the personal back and forth between the administration and President Karzai. Uh, corruption is a real issue. Drug trafficking is a real issue. Um, and I think it concerns me because I think when Americans get frustrated, they say, why don't we just bring them home and leave them to their own devices? The answer is we know how that scene, we know how that chapter ends. We were there before 9-11. What happens is Al-Qaeda gravitates in the direction of either ungoverned spaces or weakly governed spaces. And if we leave Afghanistan, we and NATO leave Afghanistan, it will return to an ungoverned space that Al-Qaeda can use to plot and plan attacks against us. And so we're left, we don't have to like Karzai, we just have to really care, not that we don't get hit again, uh, to have a commitment to stay there and see this thing through. Iran, 
Iran remains both a direct and an indirect threat to us. Direct in the sense, you know, I, we talk a lot about they are absolutely, no one should be in any doubt, they are determined, they are on a path to have a nuclear weapon. Nothing's going to get them off it. Sanctions have failed before, they will fail again. That's a delay tactic. Um, I, I have no optimism on the sanctions front. Um, military options are limited. They are also a delay tactic. They are a better delay tactic in my judgment, um, but they're not an answer. We know that for a whole bunch of reasons that involve military planning and intelligence. Um, but when we talk about this issue, frankly, I think we do a disservice to it when we don't talk about and don't acknowledge the fact that not only is Iran intent on acquiring a nuclear weapon, they are also the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. They sponsor financially and with weapons and training Hezbollah. Hezbollah is the group responsible for blowing up our Marines in Beirut. Um, they are stationed all around the world and frankly they probably have a more organized, better military, paramilitary capability than Al-Qaeda. Um, and so not only is it Iran, is Iran a proliferator, not only are they a threat because they're determined to acquire nuclear weapons, they are determined to acquire nuclear weapons in the context of being a state sponsor of terrorism who views the use of terrorism as a, a tool of their foreign policy. And so we need to have the conversation about Iran's nuclear ambitions in the context of the fact that they are a state sponsor of terror. So, I mean, they pose not only that direct threat to us, but it's an indirect threat to us through our allies. After all, uh, they are neighbors across the Gulf from Saudi Arabia, who's got 60, more than 60% of the world's known oil reserves, and who has been, the Saudis, for whatever the criticisms of, criticisms are of the Saudi government, our counterterrorism information sharing with the Saudis is second only to our sharing with the British. That is a little known fact. Um, and while they, I don't think, I think it is fair to say they didn't get seriously in the counterterrorism game with us until 2003 when there was a, a, an Al-Qaeda attack inside the kingdom, they are very seriously in the game now. Um, and what's that resulted in? Well, that, what that's resulted in is the problem you now see in Yemen. Saudi Arabia has such an effective counterterrorism capability inside the kingdom that has pushed the extremists to their south, um, and we see a very serious problem in Yemen. Yemen and Somalia share the same problem of either a weakly or ungoverned state. Um, and again, if you want to think about where are you going to see Al-Qaeda popping up in terms of a safe haven, you look for weakly and ungoverned states. Um, I've been to Yemen many times, met with President Saleh. Uh, this is a problem of will. It's a weak government that is not resolved to confront the issue without a whole lot of capability. Corruption is a problem. Arms are a problem. Uh, and so this is going to be a serious problem, that, and they need our help to confront it. Uh, we've seen public reports that the president has authorized the use of lethal force to, to against al-Awlaki. He's an American citizen. He's an imam in Sana'a. He's been a target of U.S. intelligence for many years. He was uh, imam to two 9-11 hijackers in San Diego. He was spiritual advisor and inspiration to Nadal Hassan here in Texas, at Fort Hood and he was uh, clearly part of the uh, planning cell that launched the attempted Christmas Day attack. I can think of no more worthy a candidate for lethal authority. Um, that said, what do we see after we learn about the president's authorization, but that President Saleh's foreign minister comes out and says, they're not going to help the United States. 
you, know, I, you can well imagine my reaction to that. Um, I, I have to say, but there's been no U.S. public debate about that. There's no discussion about how outrageous that is, given the Christmas Day attempt and, and the hundreds of thousands, the, the millions of dollars that were pouring into Yemen in aid. Um, this is a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem and continue to be a threat. Okay, so I talked to you about big end threats, the more easy tactical threats, strategic threats, and I walked around the Middle East. I thought I'd open it up if I haven't talked too long and take some questions. Maybe I, maybe I missed something that you said that got past me. Um, how, on a scale of 1 to 10, where is Al-Qaeda in the process of developing, or are they, a nuclear capability? They're, they have stated their determination. We don't know if they have a capability. I suspect we would, based on the intelligence community. But the answer is we don't have a clear answer. We certainly, no one, the director of CIA, the director of national intelligence, have not indicated that we know that they've got the capability. What we know is they aspire to it, and they're determined. I don't think we know the answer. Yes? I heard recently that the Australians had developed a laser method for making nuclear materials that's much simpler than the current methods. Can you speak to that and its danger? You know, I'm sorry, I can't. I haven't read the reports. You, you'll now spur my curiosity to go look. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen it. I heard it yesterday. Yeah. Okay. Frank, why aren't we working harder with the Syrians to deter the, you know, Iranian uh, situation? I would think that they would be more receptive than maybe some others. You know, it's interesting that there was a policy debate going back about four years ago. Was the right thing to do to isolate the Syrians and push them, or was it to try and peel them off and drive a wedge between the Syrians and the Iranians? For the longest time, our Arab allies encouraged us, I, I would say, uh, to isolate the Syrians and to, to try and get them to a point where they then were, were asking for dialogue. I, I don't think, you know, we tried that. And during that period of time, the problem was not everyone, including our European allies, were of the same mind. And so you would see the British Prime Minister send someone in to talk to Assad. Uh, that didn't work so well. And we learned, frankly, of the proliferation problem. So. I do think that the idea is now we want to see to drive a wedge between Syria and Iran. I think that's the right approach. Um, we see, you hear of uh, back channel talks between the Syrians and the Israelis. I think that's a good thing for that policy. Um, but Syria, again, while they don't have, they don't give the financial backing to Hezbollah uh, that Iran does. They, while Iran gives them money, Syria tends to give them safe haven. Uh, for many years, Imad Mugnia, who was the planner of the Lebanon barracks, uh, the Beirut barracks bombing, took residence in, in Damascus. He's been murdered, he's dead, but there are many leaders there, including Khalid Mashal, who visit uh, Syria and find, you know, find comfort and support in Syria. And we have to get the Syrians to deny the terrorist link if we're going to peel them away from Iran. I understand there's a lot of pet uh, um, plutonium uh, supplies that are unsecured. Could you talk about those and the potential access that 
terrorists or international criminals would have? Absolutely. It's a wonderful question because I think people think of an improvised nuclear device having highly enriched uranium. Um, and what we know now is that that's not necessary. Um, we know that plutonium, which is a byproduct of the natural nuclear fuel cycle, and has to be moved around typically for reprocessing from l very large facilities in large quantities, uh, has to be moved around. When it's in transit, it is most vulnerable. It can be moved sometimes by road, by rail, or by ship. Um, I can remember when I was in the White House, I traveled all over uh, the world talking to those allies that move plutonium and trying to separate plutonium to convince them of the importance of securing it, doing it in a secure way. I will tell you, I am heartened. Many of our allies, particularly in Europe, Japan, went to great lengths to increase the security of those shipments in transit. Um, but as long as you've got the need for reprocessing at facilities that can't do it on site, this is going to be a risk. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.